Welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast. The Seventh Art is a video magazine about cinema featuring profiles on interesting aspects of the film industry, video essays, and interviews with filmmakers. If you've heard the previous episode of our podcast, you'll know that we used the platform to offer an extended version of an interview with filmmaker Ron Mann that was abridged in the video magazine. While we will continue to offer audio-only versions of our magazine's interviews, this is our inaugural episode that is unique in content and will hopefully result in more regular releases. The goal of our new podcast is to invite one or more critics to have an in-depth discussion on an interesting film that for whatever reason has not yet received its due. You may not be aware of it, but Toronto has a contingency of critics that are strong supporters of David Tui's 2009 film A Perfect Getaway. While the film received generally favorable reviews upon its release, there are a number of interesting aspects that have gone unremarked upon. Whether you've seen the film before or not, the following podcast will hopefully illustrate why it is an important film. Here is our discussion of A Perfect Getaway. I'm Adam Naiman. I write for Reverse Shot and The Globe and Mail. I'm Peter Kaplowski. I write for Twitch Film occasionally, and I program for Toronto After Dark. Uh, I'm Jason Anderson, and I write for The Grid in Toronto and The Toronto Star. I'm Kiva Reardon. I write for uh, Torontoist and occasionally Cinemascope. My name is John Semley. I'm the Toronto City editor of the Onions AV Club and a freelance contributor to their national site and a handful of other publications. So much of the movie is predicated on um, questions of whether audiences are paying attention. And I think that it's a really daring gambit at the beginning for him to assume by virtue of the fact that titles are playing over images, that you're just settling into your seats, that this isn't something that you have to look at very closely. Like on one level, it's quite obvious what's happening, which is two characters are getting married, and uh, that would seem to be the beginning of their story. I think he's playing to some extent on the fact that people n- kind of know what movie they're going to see, that it's about a couple that are going on a honeymoon. I think this is a movie that's consciously made knowing how it's going to be promoted, which is simultaneously interesting because I think it was so badly promoted and that kind of contributed to it being a commercial failure. So, I mean, maybe other people want to talk about it in more detail but to me that's the first really key point in the movie where he's almost daring you to pay attention and if you do pay attention not just the wedding video but the dialogue immediately thereafter when they're driving in the car um, it doesn't just give a hint about what's happening it says it uh, directly when um, he's talking about the brother Uh, Jovovich's character actually says I don't know he has like six brothers I mean it's the dialogue's right there. It's, it's, so I think that that's kind of an interesting place to start talking about a movie where the twist, such as it is, is in plain sight the entire time. Well, they confuse, too, where the brother is from, if he's from Michigan or elsewhere. And the, like you're saying about the promotion, too. I mean, this is a film that came out. Uh, there was Touristas, and uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, not The Ruins. The Ruins, which were kind of tour- on holiday. Yeah, disaster on holiday. things. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, Perfect Getaway was sort of soft-pitched at, as, and that it was promoted at all. But the, I mean, the thing I really like about the movie is that it's this sort of film that does what a lot of Love on the Run movies do, which is align you with the bad guys. But this doesn't do them as anti-heroes. This takes the villains and sort of posits them as heroes in a way that's almost psychotic. And in, in that sense, it has this sort of psychotic attention to detail like they're uh, constantly rehearsing things and going over things and the video is about that because when we see this it's uh, Jovovich watching it in the car and rehearsing it and as Adam says we don't really even think that like oh you can't see their faces or does that really sound like them like these aren't questions that don't really enter our heads because the sort of worldview that he's building is so complete in its cliches. It just strikes me that it was just thinking there was an interesting echo with Manhunter because that's basically the big plot reveal in Manhunter. It's when William Peterson realizes, oh, you've been watching these same home movies I have. You know, these are not like these, you know, which is basically the reveal that the the, the killer has been working at the photo lab where he was developing the film. So, and that's it. It's kind of interesting because it just sort of throws these um, you know, the, it, it, what seems like, like Adam was, was saying, what seems like total filler off the top of the movie, that it's just not there for any reason but to kind of go, hey, they got married and they have friends. You know, like, and it is just such a sort of a thing that calls attention how, I mean, how, how little is actually really done in the first few minutes in a lot of films like this, that they don't really have a purpose. And, then, and of course, this turns out to have, you know, a, a huge purpose. I'm also a really big fan of the... Uh of the editing of that sequence and the aesthetic decision to really play with the uh, artifacting of the digital camera. Um, it's more of a superficial appreciation. I just like 
I like when artifacting, digital artifacting, gets played around with because I think it's a very modern and recent sort of idea, and it also implies like a sense of corruption to that to that footage, and that footage is getting corrupted uh, as as it goes on and until it gets replaced with the uh, new footage that um, Steve Zahn and Mila are shooting with. And I just kind of like the idea of, of imagining pixels as, you know, distinct layers that are being blocked together. I think that's a neat image. And I don't know if it's Toei's image or if it was creative title designers playing with the theme, but I, I, I really dig that part of the sequence. Well, I guess, too, when, uh, you know, we think, oh, yeah, this is the beginning of the film, but it sort of functions in two ways as the literal beginning that you have the credits rolling over it but then this is also when the thriller component of the film actually begins and I love that it's it's placement is after uh after the line uh nothing exists until I get there and it's like this film doesn't exist until you actually comprehend and see this actual footage and then this is when the movie just snaps and becomes what I think you were expecting like I was going over some of the reviews when it came out and I think it was the Guardian one was saying, you know, based on the title, I was expecting a heist film and they were just super disappointed because they'd gone in thinking they were going to get a heist film and then only really liked it till after this reveal and after this incredible tempo picked up and they got what they wanted. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point about that as a line of dialogue that both works in the plot, but it's also kind of a, a, a statement of, um, yeah, it's a larger statement about the way the movie works and to return to the wedding sequence, not... Uh, when it's discovered by the characters in the film, but when we actually see it, there's a, a really key line in that scene, which is you dance with the mm -hmm. one who brought you, which is the advice from supposedly the character's brother, and it's him, or their friends rather, not his brother, and it's it, within the context of the wedding video, it's, oh, don't forget about your friends when you get married, it's kind of very much about, you know, dudes hanging out and, and being mm -hmm. bros and all that. But if you look at the way the movie plays with identification, which I think is the most stunning thing about it, mm -hmm. um, that's Tui really setting up his project, which is, are you going to dance with the people mm -hmm. who brought you here? Are you going to, how long will you identify with main characters who are not particularly likable, who seem sort of slippery, non-trustworthy? How long will you identify with them at the expense of characters who really you kind of like more, uh, just because the rules of movies tell you that you that you have to. And given how carefully everything in the movie is done, as Kiva pointed out, the dialogue, as Peter pointed out, some of the play with image, I refuse to believe that that's an incidental line that one reads more into. I don't think that it's respectful to the movie to just say that that's, that just happens to be there. It's one of the first big lines in the movie, and it means something. Well, it also plays to a really climactic moment, moment in the film as well, which is the which is Mila in the helicopter with the cops. Sort of, that's, that's her final decision, because she's the one who basically sort of engineers you know who gets shot at the end of the film, yeah. and uh, and that's the thing, and that's sort of that, that that so that sort of plays to or sort of points nicely to her dilemma, which is like, does she dance with the one who brought her, which is her psycho Rocky guy, <laughs> or does she actually take this opportunity to make some kind of break with this life that obviously there's enough indication that she's not all on board with the project, but. Right, yeah. Uh, this might be shifting gears a bit, but what Peter said about pixelation mm -hmm. reminded me of this is throughout the movie, uh, I mean, Jovovich is, even when Oliphant comes on screen, is the only one who poses any real sort of threat because of her sort of existent text as a mid-range, if top-shelf, uh, action movie heroine. <laughs> but uh, throughout the film, I mean, and again, I mentioned this, how I like the idea that you're being forced into an identification pattern with two psychotic individuals, but she seems like there's almost a Stockholm Syndrome element where she's trying to break out of it. She's giving away too much. It's like the, the film itself is kind of pixelating and pulling away at the edges. Um, and, you know, and again, it's the kind of thing that's set up from the very beginning by sort of taking this edge off of her by establishing her in the wedding shot as a, just kind of a rich girl with sorority sisters in this and trying to sort of, uh, you know, sand away the edges of her sort of inherently vixenish threat. I guess in terms of the cast, she'd be the top grocer of the, uh, by, a, by, a, by a good margin, I should think. Yeah, yeah. No, probably not Steve Zahn. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I wonder if people have thoughts about the casting, and the movie gives you uh, 
plenty of opportunity to consider the casting because there's an entire scene where they discuss the fact that Nicolas Cage is not in this movie. Um, <laughs> nor you know, Johnny Depp. Nor, nor Johnny Depp. I mean, there's an entire discussion about people liking to go see movies because of movie stars and the associations that they bring with them, that that can be a substitute for a decent story. And that's right before the Oliphant character tosses off a perfect Nicolas Cage impression as if he's not even interested <laughs> in it, before moving on to talking about how what you need is a, is a good story. I agree with what John says about the casting of Jovovich and the associations that she brings in, but I wonder what people think about uh, the presence of a guy like Steve Zahn, the presence of someone like Timothy Oliphant. Are these really the kind of anonymous actors in the service of the story, or do they bring their own stuff to it sort of as well? Well, I, I think one effect is that they're character actors for the most part when, they're, when they appear in movies. Um, Steve Zahn is usually saddled as a comic relief character, um, and, um, and Oliphant... I mean, he's never really had a breakout project. There's been attempts for him to, to get that. But again, I think when you see those characters, you immediately, you immediately, you, immediately, uh, you see those actors in, in a film, you kind of immediately assume they're, they're not going to be doing something that's outside their safety net. It's right. kind of, they, they're, they are types. And so it, I think it's playing with the typecast that Timothy Oliphant is, a, is, an, is an actor who would get cast as a villainous stalker in a movie. Right. Or also, just thinking about, you know, that sort of idea where, where Nicolas Cage is at least mentioned. These are the kinds of guys who show up in a movie first just before Nicolas Cage comes in. Like, they're kind of like, they're like the third and fourth guys, right? So I think the idea of actually having them kind of as essentially, you know, nondescript type actors in the sort of Hollywood pecking order to have, I mean, you really don't have, it's, it's nice because they're familiar actors without really having much baggage for me. And especially Steve Zahn, it's interesting to go back to the movie after Steve Zahn has been on Treme for a couple of seasons because that's been a really rich role for him too. But he's sort of like, you know, that's kind of like his soulful nutcase sort of uh, role that he was sort of born to play. But this is kind of his first step towards that away from the kind of more, you know, sort of straight goofball type stuff. Well, he's, he's like the nerd. Mm. And the film obviously plays with his nerdiness, you know, mm. that he's kind of ineffectual and geeky with his uh, glasses that he climactically snaps in half because he is so very not good. And then there's Sanchez who is, comes as essentially a blank canvas. I mean, I can't think of stuff she was in before this. Um, and kind of ends up emotionally stealing a lot of the better bits near to the end. 30 Days of Night, that was the only one right. that resonated with me. Right. Um, but I think actually because they, because they are these well, I guess character actors as well, but it actually, so much of the movie, for me at least, is just based solely on their bodies, so it actually works that, or I don't know, for me, looking at them, other than Mila, who is, in my mind, so associated with, like, specifically sci-fi action, to see her not in some kind of, like, ultraviolet hyper world, just, like, roughing it in the bush, actually just seemed sort of bizarre. Um, but their their bodies just seem to be something that is so central to the film and that, like, everything about it is stripping it down, even, like, mm-hmm. Son breaking his glasses. And, and actually, Adam made this point when we were talking earlier that he's finally, when he's on the beach, he's in this tank top, and you're like, oh, God, he's Jack. That's terrifying. Whereas you, when you see Oliphant right away, he is, he sort of wears this masculinity mm-hmm. on its sleeve, and then this is comes to play and the same with Hemsworth as well which is I think yeah. watching that post Thor is like before and after that is this sudden yeah a, a different experience but, uh, but that's actually a really good point too because you really do have these sort of sense of those out of those sort of three male leads you know two guys with sort of almost sort of, sort of exaggerated machismo and I think also with with, with Oliphant's character quite calculated uh, you know exaggeration because I mean that's one thing I love about that performance is that you have a sense of he is playing it up for the screenwriter. He wants to be this character. He wants to be someone else in the eyes of this guy to kind of impress him. Maybe he really does want to write a screenplay about him. He wants to be bigger than life. So you can see him playing that because you do see that, you know, where he's a very different person when he's sort of like, you know, trying to save his girlfriend from certain death. I mean, it's not the same guy. But I I don't think that he does. This is Mm. why I actually think the linchpin of the movie is Sanchez. And that's Mm. why she is like fully on display, Mm -hmm. literally, just splayed out nude when she's you first nice meet her. True. She, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it seems like, you know, she's served, she's being served up and that you're just supposed to look at her and take her at, at face value and that she's already completely stripped down. And then she's actually, I think, the most interesting character in the film. And actually, 
fights back better than anybody. And well, the only real hint that you get of, of this, this, you know, something that, you know, that lies beneath this, you know, nubile skin and lovely body that you're eyeing or ogling, not to sound too creepy you about it, but I can, else well, I can say that because I'm a woman. <laughs> no, it's yeah. a really good point because you really, I mean, I think that, that that's true because there's two people who really gain a physicality in the back half of the movie and it's her and it's Zahn. Like Zahn becomes, especially by the time of the beach scene, he is puffed up, he is... He is meth rage, Ooh, you know, yeah. and he's plausibly buff in a way. It's, it's an interesting sort of term because he doesn't really have any physicality for the first half of the film. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that ties into something that I'd really love to hear everyone talk about or, you know, talk about it till it's exhausted. But I think that there's a lot, which is, I mean, it's so much a film about performativity and about choosing roles. Yeah. And I think that there's a wonderful satirical point in there that the only kinds of people who would aspire to be the people who Zahn and Jovovich seem to be at the beginning, which is these kind of cheerful, well-moneyed, <laughs> upwardly mobile J-crew people, that this is a, a sociopath's aspiration. And it's so boring, in fact. It makes them so boring as characters to us, and it makes them so boring to each other. They immediately want out. Um, because given the pathology of their characters as serial killers, they don't just want to kill Oliphant and Sanchez to get off the island and escape, escape suspicion. They very creepily want their lives. Mm -hmm. They want their lives the same way that we as audience members come to see them as attractive and vivacious and self-sufficient. What, what, what we find attractive about these two as characters, so too do uh, Zahn and Jovovich. And that's why something's actually at stake, I think, at the end of the movie. There's this scene where Sanchez is sort of crying and she's very upset and when everything's happened and the showdown's happened he says he wants to be us yeah and i find that line kind of hard to 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 shake it's much deeper than in most films where one set of characters wants to do something to another well especially when you rewatch it um there's the sense uh that as much as they're talking to each other like oh are these two the killers which is what you're supposed to buy the first time they're sizing them up as like potential next victims yeah. and the kind of people they want to be and i mean to, to backpedal a bit to the stuff about uh, performativity and identifying with characters, like, I think part of what makes this movie fun is, like, you know, you can make the argument that it's a movie about acting and so being a movie about movies. But the, the best scene is when it has that flashback and there's the incredibly tender, beautiful scene between Sanchez and Oliphant where he goes through the whole ruse to get her the ring and leaves the bottle of water there. Then it cuts back and he gets his actual action hero Rambo scene where he folds his skull back on yeah. his head and then ties a bandana around it. And then I forget if he has a pithy one-liner. He says, I'm coming, baby. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and then so, get, I mean, you're saying that he is performing this role for Zahn, but I mean, the satisfaction of the film is when he actually gets to perform it to himself. Mm -hmm. when, we, when we find out that, like, you know, Nick's stories aren't just bullshit. He's not full, but he genuinely is hard to kill. And I think this is just what Adam was saying, too, about this this investment in them. Is That's why the flashbacks work as well, is that there is this genuine, uh, you actually care and you actually want them to make it and otherwise so so often i feel flashbacks feel you know contrived or some kind of cheat out of you know, filling in some narrative loophole but this is an actual it's actually really tender and a moment too when i think like this whole movie is really confused with genre as well which is probably why it was so badly received because it's hard to slot but it actually becomes a sincerely beautiful love story at that moment yeah i think so too I got nothing at the moment, guys. <laughs> but on, on that, I mean, if we want to get to the twist right away, uh, which, you know, Perfect Getaway certainly takes its time. Although, uh, although again, this is one of the great things about the twist is it doesn't actually take as long as a lot of well, them. Well, exactly. I mean, it's not a twist end so much as a twist middle, you know? Yes. And <laughs> we, we're talking about that scene, and which is important for a reason, not only because it's well done, you know, everyone is rooting for them, even like the jeweler who doesn't even want to make money <laughs> off them and be crass or so in love. Um, but, I mean, it works it works so well because in that scene like the entire film is kind of lazy Susan around yeah. and you end up rooting for the the opposite team you know yeah. and there's something interesting in that in that as I kind of mentioned I think it's Jovovich and Oliphant who are the only ones who seem until that point really threatening so there's kind of this like crossover potential uh, in the camps but I mean when that happens the fact that the the film doesn't even have to make us buy it, but that it's so easy to buy and so easy to take that leap, which I can't think of another film that really, really does that in the same way. Uh, again, just speaks to you know the ways that it's kind of working so elegantly um, that are you know barely perceptible. 
Well, barely perceptible, but to get back to that opening wedding video, and we might all have our own examples, um, the conversations that they have about red herrings, or as they call them, red, red snappers, snappers. Mm -hmm. um, I get tired of that stuff in movies, but to me, he kind of walks the walk and talks the talk. He has his characters talk about it, but also visually in the way he makes the movie. He does it so consistently. Like, there are so many visual red snappers in, uh, in, 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 in A Perfect Getaway. I don't know if anyone remembered this one. My favorite is there's a scene where Zahn's character is trying to read his cell phone. And he can't read it because of his glasses. So he takes his glasses off to look at it, which would mm -hmm. indicate that he's nearsighted. And then almost immediately thereafter, something else happens and he's trying to scope out something going on on the beach. I think he's trying to see if someone's around. And he has to take his glasses off to <laughs> look because he's farsighted. And to me, that's just an extension of that opening video, uh, wedding video where we never see their faces. If someone's paying attention, uh, he's not cheating. Uh, at all, which is why when reviews of the film came out, and maybe we can talk a bit about its reception, um, people said, oh, the, the film is filled with cheats, it, it lies to you the entire time, and I thought, actually, if you watch this film as carefully as the person who made it was, was, was watching it while he was making it, it's constantly in plain sight for the entire time. What he's counting on is, uh, you know, as we talked about, that we take this kind of stuff for granted, that we're not really paying attention to the visual language of a story, that we're not really paying attention to traits that films... Uh, establish about their characters and I think it's a credit to the film that um, it's not ruined if you know what's going on mm -hmm. it's not a film like say The Sixth Sense which it was compared to like my brother who I saw with figured out what was happening in the first five minutes because he's smart and because he heard something that I myself didn't hear it didn't affect you know at all it's not one of those movies where uh, I think it's a spoiler alert special necessarily no and this is I think works with both what but uh, you and John are saying too is that the the whole film is basically just works to reduce your vision on every level and it, it's it's perfect like that and I think like the only thing I can think of where you get that switch is something like the conversation or something like that and you suddenly realize the whole time that you've been perceiving uh, incorrectly or at least so so specifically and the moment too huh. that and I think this is again as we're saying it's not just at the level of, of narrative or in, or in the script it's com it's complete is uh, when they're when they're boar hunting I think it's boars a right? goat, goat. goat yeah. no but he comes back with a any okay yeah goat hunting he said we're not hunting goats here so it's a moot point anyways yeah. but when they're in in the, the in the brush in the thick of it and uh, and and Alphonse started playing with him, doing his marine hand single signal, stop and go, stop and go, and the music starts cueing with it, mm. and you are completely sutured into Zahn's perspective that it's just like yelling at you that you are only seeing things one way. Yeah. That yeah. That so that when that when that switch happens, when that twist happens, it's completely believable whether or not that you know that matters or not for me it was completely believable because the film is completely constructed to be that way well something of the setting i think does is really good for that because something that kind of gets occluded when people don't talk about this movie is that it's gorgeous i mean the the, the landscapes are gorgeous it's shot in hawaii where no, people go to it's some it's both it was mostly right. shot in Puerto Rico. Okay. There's a lot of established. I've actually been to that part of Hawaii with the, with the that coastal trail is very famous. It's on the island of Kauai. Okay. Uh, but there's it's a, they don't call it that. But that's clearly the one they're using for some of the um, second unit type stuff. But, but they're, yeah, so good. But it is mostly Hawaii. Right. But the, I mean the the point is that there's a there's a way in which he manages to be claustrophobic with it, despite mm -hmm. the film oscillating into huge like heli helicopter shots and these big vistas and uh, waterfalls and all that but the film sets up this idea that there's no possible forward and backward movement for them like they can't go back because they're too far in and when they go forward they're only going to a beautiful dead end okay. so everything is being sort of structurally delimited on mm. all sides it's um, also a dead end that you see right from the beginning which is my favorite like you get the helicopter shot yeah. at the beginning like <laughs> fyi we're ending up here here is your reveal like you get that right away but also and i'm like this is kind of a stretch but i actually think it's true so i'm just going to say it anyways when you think about sanchez and hawaii i think they actually work perfectly together like there's these like beautiful or like on the surface these aesthetically beautiful things and I mean that like literally supposed to be things that when you actually start to think about it though then become these totally like potentially dangerous things as well like the whole film is meant to be this 
you know, what's beneath the surface. Right. And Hawaii itself is, you know, built on volcanoes and <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's a stretch, yeah. however. Um, it, uh, maybe communicates that more elegantly than The Descendants, which is <laughs> supposed to be about well, that. Yes. But the, the, the valiant landowners, the valiant yeah. white landowners of Hawaii. The, uh, <laughs> the, the beautiful dead end thing is true. One movie that I thought of while watching this, and it's interesting to compare these two directors, because at one point they were contemporaries, and now one has left the other in the dust in terms of critical respect. But I was thinking of Seven. One of the best things in Seven is when they come out um, after an entire film set in the city that's set in the rain, that's set in the dark, and the final showdown happens, if you remember, in like a sun-blasted mm -hmm. yellow space with telephone wires and one of the snipers in a helicopter, and again, another film that involves helicopters circling and snipers, is there sure is shit no ambush out here. And as a viewer, you sort of go, yeah, what the heck can happen here? So in a perfect getaway, and I remember this really strongly when we saw Jason mm -hmm. and I together for the first time, I'd gotten so into it, and when they arrived at the beach, I was completely creeped out mostly by the fact that there were other people around, yeah. Yeah. that they're playing touch football, <laughs> that everyone seems to have been safely found and located, and I thought, the same way I, I felt in Seven when it's no longer about a serial killer coming around a corner and stabbing you or going into some sort of broken <laughs> house, I thought, what on earth could happen here that will pay off what's being built up? And if they are managing to pay it off, because you feel as a film viewer you're in good hands, this is going to be really something. Because there's all these, there's all these people around. Um, their mm. conversations on the beach are had while touch football was being played. These characters aren't isolated anymore. It's, you don't think it's possible that someone's just going to turn on somebody anymore. So that whole idea of the claustrophobia, even though they're out on an island, of them camping together and roughing together and knives and, and weapons in close quarters seems to be completely obliterated. It's it and it's it it's all conveyed visually to me too, just in the way he shoots that beach as a totally open space. I think it's an astonishing visual um, visual choice, and it really did remind me of the end of Seven. It's funny also how not jarring the sort of when the helicopter comes to to nab the total red herring couple, yeah. the, the, the Chris Hemsworth couple and Marley Shelton couple, because it doesn't you realize that like it it isn't one of these films where. These characters are all placed far, 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 far away from. It's actually things are very close. I mean, yeah. these helicopters are very close. I mean, they're sort of like the. And when you get to the touch football guys on the beach, you realize that this is happening within. You know, it's not a busy highway necessarily. It's not like a city block, but there's still people here in this context. They're not the sort of the that that sort of. You know, and you realize how many how often thrillers sort of have to depend on that sort of artificiality where they they're driving people far, far away from everybody else. So these things can happen. It's like, right. well, no, it doesn't happen in that kind of context. Well, there's yeah. even a character who warns them that there's yeah. many twists twist and turns, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I think, I mean, and Adam, as you mentioned, it is get kind of annoying when a, a film is cueing you in that much that, like, this is about screenwriting, this is about the craft of narrative. But I feel like in a lot of ways, like, those those are the red herrings because it is very it is very tricky to, like, when, they, when the twist comes, it's still so satisfying because it's hard to put a finger on it when it happens. So all these things that are cueing you in, the fact that the movie, I mean, obviously the movie can outthink it because it's putting them there only to keep one step ahead. Um, but I think that's one of its greatest successes. That and the fact that it uses its own sort of dull kind of half-boring tropes like the scorpion and the tequila bottle and all that and the things that a movie like this would and should have. Um, which is, I think, what makes it a great not as a pejorative, but a great B film is that there's a couple things in it that don't really work, where the reach kind of exceeds the grasp a little bit. Um, it's kind of like those imperfections that humanize it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Makes like it it's like, like how God can only make the perfect. <laughs> perfect <laughs> so you have to insert a yeah. uh, mistake in it on purpose. And, yeah. and speaking of mistakes, I just before we leave that particular scene on the beach, kind of just in the the moment before the the flashback and before the reveals. Is that shot? I remember the first time seeing it, and I, I went back to it recently, and I thought that's a very jarring shot. Which is when Steve Zahn sits down on the beach, and he brings out whatever the butane, the fire, yeah. And the way that that shot is just you. I remember seeing it the first time, going, "What was that?" And then I moved on because it, I just. Kind of, but you remember the shot that comes quickly after that, which is what Keely Sanchez cleaning a yeah, knife. That's what yeah, say. which is also very unsettling because, uh -huh. we, because on one hand, it's not. We yeah. know yeah. that that's been used for A, B, and C. Yeah. Already, but it's like this series of shots of the characters almost at rest. But yes, there's these there's two little of bits of rupture right before everything starts to sort of come and shift to direction before that yeah. movie sort of really pivots. And then there's that also that moment where it's it's then 
Like, I think the biggest twist of the movie is when he looks away. He's like, and it's like, if I look away, everything stops. Yeah. And it literally does. And you and it, it does. It gears you up for this reveal. But I think there's still that, that yeah. I think those two shots are taking advantage of what you said earlier about the fact that you're in this open space. Um, the movie has seemed to have stopped. And, and as an audience, you're going, okay, so are they now going to go back? And is that what they're going to happen when they go back into the claustrophobic? Yeah. Uh, it, okay, we have now these elements to, to play with. There's a knife. There's something that could explode in the ground. Is that going to play? He just throws a bunch of pieces on the table and just just to keep you going through this this sequence that could be construed as kind of dull because you're like mm, yeah. nothing mm-hmm. of incident. Is it's also the scene where Zahn is, and we never see anything like this, which makes it weird. And I think it comes right after the knife cleaning, where it appears like he kisses Jovovich's shoulder, but we find out he's just smoking meth yeah. and talking yeah. behind him. <laughs> and as much as they have their kind of funny, like "Oh, Mrs. Cindy Anderson" stuff at the beginning, there's no scenes of like genuine sweetness and affection uh, between them, you know. And, and he stages it in a way that kind of moves us away from them, you know, where they're kind of seen through this odd filter of the the guys in the foreground playing football and stuff like that, which is obviously to hide what he's actually doing. You're also in this sequence beginning to notice uh, Zahn's muscles. Right, yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, as, as was brought up earlier, which which just, you know, I don't think, unless you're an audience member that figured this out early on, which I've heard exist, yeah. um, <laughs> but um, you're, you're at least being prepared that... that there's something uncanny going on. But it's another thing heralded in the dialogue. I mean, one of the motifs, the dialogue motif in the movie is situational awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it plays on, you know, the Oliphant character hasn't seen enough movies. So his situational <laughs> awareness, see, you know, oh, no, wait, no, it's backwards. His situational awareness is better than the Zahn character because he's experienced this stuff in real life instead of on the page. But ultimately, all of his, you know, elite black op American Jedi training hasn't left him vulnerable for this kind of diabolical planning. But that's also directed at the audience. To me, everyone in the audience who gets had by that twist or upset by that twist is being addressed in terms of their situational awareness because every setup is, uh, you know, every setup is there. And some of the setups are so funny, like when Jovovich and Zahn says, oh, we won't smoke pot. Well, oh, yeah. then they're just like doing meth on, the, <laughs> meth on the beach. It's not just a thing where because they're bad characters or sociopaths, they're doing drugs. It, set, it, it pays off a joke. Right. That, that's been carefully uh, written into the movie. Every setup in the movie has its, has its, resp- you know, has its perfectly proportioned response, and I think. I will say, though, that we are forgetting that the beach actually... Well, the movie knows that the beach isn't the ideal place because they have to get into their kayaks and go to the, the cave. Sea cave. The sea yeah, cave, yeah. which is actually, again, one of my favorite parts of the film is when uh, after... And here I will point out Cliff and Rocky... <laughs> climbs up the cliff oh. made of rock to then <laughs> yeah, I, yeah it's like everything in this movie yeah. is perfect yeah. but then Mila then switches into sure. her like high power kayaking mode yeah. and has to get back to the beach in time uh, so it sets it this is I think the actually only the real moments of isolation that you have and this is actually where, where everything goes down well I feel like we're getting close to talking about where the tempo of the film totally changes which is where some other criticisms I feel come in well, but yeah, what do people think of the tooiness of that there's something Adam you said about the difference between Oliphant's character doing having situational awareness living in real life and Zahn's character living on the page and it's important that the scene where that ruptures and when Oliphant catches on is when Zahn doesn't catch a reference to a film yeah. and he's like mm. something about this guy doesn't add up he's neither he hasn't seen enough movies, you know? So his entire conception of him breaks down and then there's the amazing reaching for the knife and dropping the bottle and getting out foxed by a half second. So it's interesting that, again, the film is working with those ideas so obviously that the character in the film, who, despite his situation, situational awareness, is actually kind of dopey, catches yeah. on to it when like the, his whole construction of what the character is begins to sort of dissolve. And him. maybe to just go out from that and then segue into what I sort of lazily called the tooiness of it, maybe Peter can talk about what I mean by that and talk about below in pitch black, but I don't know if it's just because I've seen the film so many times, if I'm invested in it, or maybe because all of us see movies for a living, you can agree or disagree can't remember too many American movies that have so many, I thought this about Attack the Block as well, that have so many distinct and interesting and separate kinds of backdrops within a single movie. It's like every, the location scouting in this movie and the, the, the uses that those locations are put to. I mean, that green sequence where they're hunting the goat, mm-hmm. 
where they're inside what seems to be like a solid hut made of trees. It's just this really sort of claustrophobic forest space. The sea cave is a totally unique space within the movie, too. I mean, it's this kind of, it's outdoors, but it's indoors. It's eerily quiet. The color coding of it is totally different. There's color coding in the in the filmmaking, obviously, between past and present, but, but I find all the backdrops extremely loquacious uh, in this movie. And I don't know if that's just good location scouting or if it's yeah. a, a way that Plummer shoots it. It reminded me too, uh, Attack the Block's a good example because that one, also Hatchet, which is not as good a movie, <laughs> but also reminded me of this, uh, where it's like an old dungeon crawler video game where it's basically the Levels. same, yeah, yeah. The, the same sort of background. You have one entrance and one exit yeah. dressed up differently, mm-hmm. but the, the sort of, the space is fairly coherent consistently. Um, which not to talk about attack the block, but attack the block works amazingly like that. I mean, they're essentially it's a it's a sequence of running from one space to the other that yeah. looks different but pose the same. And you can draw a line through those spaces really clearly. Absolutely. And maybe that's why he set, he sets up the film with that uh, helicopter shot because right. you actually see the expanse of the whole trailer about to to go across. Yeah, that's right. Well, speaking of spatial coherence, the the twoiness of multiple split screens. I well, like this is this is a bit outside that, but I was just thinking about how much. I loved the arrival when I first saw it, and I think I saw it pretty much like first weekend. And and how much I appreciated that because one thing I thought at the time was, wow, there's a third act in this movie. <laughs> and and thinking about Tui movies in general, like it goes back all the way to Timescape, all the way to Timescape, and even to, 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 to Warlock, which he which he wrote. Like he really is an Act Three master. And the thing about that Act Three, especially in 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 this one and the arrival too, is the acceleration. Like it'll actually just sort of hit that point at the end of Act Two, and then it's just a full gallop you never expect in films these days. Well, Zahn has the line about it's like the world is in sleep mode and then when we look <laughs> at it, it wakes up. So, you know, when we finally start watching what Kiva called, I think, the movie itself, like when the movie itself starts happening, it's like a valve opens up mm-hmm. and then everything sort of expels out in a way that I think works. But I'm interested to know what other people think. No, I, I think it's great. I, what I what I always appreciate about Toei is that, uh, especially in his third act, when things get get kicked into high gear. Um, I love uh, how he how he sort of marries the sound design with the editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't know, I, like I noticed the split screen obviously in this movie, but I think what's more emphatic is how those cuts and those edits and those uh, split compositions are all cued to um, uh, the rhythmic beat of the soundtrack, mm-hmm. which you see in him experimenting with in Chronicles of Riddick where he was trying to create some sort of rhythm-based action Sequence, right. which didn't ultimately, I think, work in that film, but he does it. He does it. He does it right in Timescape. Timescape has this whole mo- motif set around Furelise, and there's a whole climax mm-hmm. involving someone hitting bells <laughs> to make Furelise. That's supposed to call everybody out of this town so that a meteor won't hit the town. <laughs> and uh, again, the whole sequence is like really, really, um, e- even for a made-for-TV production, really, really sophisticatedly put together. Um, on, on on entirely the the, the operation uh, sort of following the the guidelines of a musical soundtrack that is driving all the edits decisions, mm-hmm. all the composition decisions, uh, all the figure movement decisions. I think it's really really fascinating that it's become a through line that I didn't really notice. I think until this film. Did you notice from Timescape? Because I'm just thinking about that the way that split screen. Because because there's very little of the split screen. It's really just that set of running sequence. And what it looks like is, is though, though they take advantage of it, I think quite well in the flashback. Too, oh, true. To help, well. to help actually yeah. make that that segue. Well, it's I mean, almost like a De Palmi De Palma yeah, style. It pushes Hitchcock. over. It's not quite yeah. a split screen. It does for me. I'm watching a second time. I'm like, oh, that's, maybe that's why they're having that comic book conversation in the beginning. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because it does sort of set up. I mean, there's otherwise no uh, necessarily. Uh, Big reasons for them to have that comic book conversation. Good detail. Good detail, exactly. <laughs> but that does actually, I mean, and watching a second time, I'm like, oh, it's kind of a nice harmonious sort of, to, to return to something that is actually a very, you know, comic book panel sort of look just for a moment. Right? And the thing about comic books is that comic books have the luxury of being able to see an entire page and entire mm. moments all at once. Well, and this is what, I think it all ties back to this spatial awareness again, mm. too, that you have, even when the movie picks up and becomes this super action-packed thriller that you expect, you never lose that sense of, of, of space. And you have in this, this, I think that's how, at least for me, that's, that's how the, the split screen worked. And that, and that even, you know, Mila has to paddle her way back to the beach or that they have to climb down <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. The, uh, the vine to get up from the cliff and back again. So there's... Well, this is the thing, when you establish a space so clearly, I mean, it's, I think it's okay or it works to fragment the space like that. You know, people talk about the radical incoherence of Michael Bay films, but, you know, when two robots that are cars are chasing each other down a highway that is 
being made as it goes along. Yeah. I mean, there's something that's sort of dizzying about that, where when you have something, even in the three-way split, where it's, what is it? It's Zahn, no, no. Oliphant chasing Zahn, chasing Sanchez, yeah. and they're all yeah. kind of boom, boom, boom. And they're all, you get a sense of the acceleration, and it's essentially folding the three spaces and into that, one in a way that is, you know, fairly efficient. And, and it's also an acceleration that is tied, ideally, if you if you imagine the ideal film viewer, if the film is working, and the, the you know, that's how the film viewer should think. Right. That it's saving that acceleration, not just for when it fits within the narrative, but, I mean, that's, that's a really judicious uh, editing choice he's, he's getting the maximum he can by breaking it down to its absolute basic element of one chasing the other chasing the other that should mirror how locked in we are to uh, yeah how, how locked are we you know, how locked in we are to to what's happening and I can feel if you take a look at the director's cut and this is also another semi-interesting point of conversation where I think a director's cut is inferior to the theatrical cut I think you can feel Toei trying to experiment even a little more. It's not radically different, but there's more of the photo-negative imagery in the director's cut. There's some speeded-up stuff on the beach with this group of like naked sun worshippers or something. Um, the editing, I think, in that final chase sequence is a little bit different. And it's interesting to think that if that was what he really wanted, then he got fortunate with his editor in the theatrical cut uh, not second guessing him, but just holding him to the absolute minimum required. Yeah, I, I do actually think that. I mean, that's that's what happened with Chronicles of Riddick. It's, I mean, when he when left to his own devices, he gets yeah. a little overzealous with the editing. Yeah, and because he just enjoys playing around with with it so much. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention about that chase sequence um, is that I I, I love I love how uh, how the the fragmentation of the edits and of uh, where the camera begins to sort of identify moments. Um, speaks back to the idea that the audience is now becoming more attuned to this concept of spatial uh, situational awareness um, because the first time we go through that path and up the mountain up the rope it's shot pretty conservatively it's it's uh, yeah. it's only on the way back we're getting moments and only the most important things we need to see specifically that rope moving so we're always and which which are usually not shot sort of as a, in an, a sort of an insert shot it's very jarring and it's it's not the audience noticing something, it's the film noticing something for us, but because we're locked into the adrenaline of that sequence, we feel like we're doing that work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes the sequence really exciting. It also leaves out Mila for that final, like the, the film that just keeps giving and giving little twists, and that final uh, sequence with her in the helicopter where she then, she, she ends the film. She, she shoots him, She is a spectator who has that final choice. There yes. you are. Yeah. When she is uh, watching Zahn scale the cliff from the inside, and we don't see him do it because, I mean, that would be a cheat. But uh, when she's calling the shots, like, oh, a little to the left, baby, and yeah. uh, you don't, you're not really sure what's going on. You can kind of hear it, and then he sort of leaps up and uh, grabs Sanchez. I mean, that's another excellent scene where we're only seeing the characters interact in the spaces that we have this kind of knowledge of. Uh, and he's very good at sort of, you know, playing on sort of moving up the margin of the page. And then, uh, you know, just one thing too, because we're talking about how he, I think Peter's right, that left to his own devices, he can go crazy with editing. But you see also, if we just look at the way the film is directed, he comes back to, um, you know, longer takes too. There's that awesome bit when he's landed finally, when Olufsen has landed and disarms on, and there's kind of a rock music cue. It's one of the only really rock music cues in the movie. We got the, this backwards pan, which describes an entire space of people lying on the ground and everything we need to see. Zahn's lying here, Olufsen's lying there, the gun has been thrown to one side, there's a knife. It's described entirely in this backwards pan over a space that's deep from front to back when the whole thing has been from side to side horizontally. And, um, it's sort of in those moments where you feel, I think, the best things that you can feel about film directing, which is that people are thinking through choices instead of just capitulating to the way you might want to shoot coverage for something like this or the way a movie like this is maybe supposed to be made. Like you try not to overrate it and go and and, and, and go crazy by describing these directorial choices, but at the same time, we all see so many movies, and movies aren't constantly making these choices. I don't feel directors making that best choice, that smart choice, that interesting choice, that complicated choice, r remotely as frequently as he is in this movie. And Toei to has just struck me as deliberate through his entire career. I mean, the, um, I don't want to go spend too much time on his other films, but even like the opening of Pitch Black is so deliberately cut together and, and structured in, in such a specific way. And that's another movie that I think has a really interesting... Um, 
reversal of protagonists too. Where you're really mm-hmm. unsure oh, yeah, which character yeah. you're supposed to be following with. Yeah, although the presence of Diesel in that one imbalances things more it, it, because it he's a different kind of actor. Yeah, it imbalances things more, and the marketing of that film fully gave away what we were supposed to expect with yeah. that story. I was just thinking. I was just was just thinking about. Ab's point because I just thought that you're right because it really that that way that that the final action thing is is so well balanced because you have the you kind of um, start in the in the in the sea cave which is all about depth and then you basically go it's all about laterality for a while and then it's and then and then really when you get well then it's up and down it's up and down and then when you and then when you finally finish the sort of down again and uh, and sort of another more sort of a lateral sense then you actually do have that depth again that whole finale and so much. And even exaggerate it because you actually you get have, wide angle the, lenses you have the helicopter yeah. again. Yeah. yeah, you get a lot of wide angle lenses now, which actually exaggerate the space and not and don't flatten it anymore. Mm-hmm. Too bad it's not in three D. Actually, no. no, sorry. Those axes fly. Let me rephrase that. Yeah. Thank God it's not in three D. <laughs> it's pretty bright though. I think it would hold up well. It well, would. It's yeah. actually that's actually a very it's an unusual film in that it is actually almost all daylight, isn't it? Okay, you got a little bit in the sort of the rainy night with waiting well, for the, the, the that avatar yeah. brightness that yeah. you know could work. But even the night scene is the red <laughs> snapper action scene where they kind of stalk through the woods and there's tension that never really pays off into anything except a delicious goat supper. Except for, and this is what I was going to say too when we were talking about it as being the only claustrophobic moment in the film, it's not. This is where what's his name from the... The The uh, shop. Yeah, from the shop Chronic, I think is his name. Chronic. Yeah, and he's there camping with his girlfriend. With his his bitch. With his, pardon me, with his bitch, yes. And and this, so even in these these extreme, supposedly these extreme moments of isolation, you're actually again, this... And that's also what functions to to bring the police to the beach in terms yeah, of just a pure plot. I point. thought yeah. that I don't remember him camping there. I remember him coming and catching up with him because he forgot his. Well, he's doing both. Hiking he's doing both. He's do, yeah, yeah, he's, he's that, on the that trail. was yeah. Okay. They feel yeah. They feel bad. Oh, they left it and they catch how, up. With have him. I never caught that because it brings a whole other duo into the equation. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then also this is yeah, and then this is part of the flashback as well when you're piecing together how they could have you know gotten away with this whole thing he's actually then says oh we're with this couple and we're a little concerned about him and then he goes back to civilization and calls the police so I mean given how much there is to talk about with the movie is it productive to speculate maybe on why a movie like this might have slipped through the cracks because for someone listening to this they might think well this is real overcompensation (laughs) from a bunch of people who obviously spend a lot of time watching and and thinking about movies but it's not a traditional cult film because it's not an extreme film remotely it is violent but Mm -hmm. it's not uh, remotely extreme it's hard to dress up as any of the characters for Halloween it's hard to dress up as the characters (laughs) for Halloween but I don't think that that kind of movement is a foot either it's not a movie that one reclaims ironically Mm -hmm. it's not a Mm -hmm. movie that a studio suppressed like you can say it was poorly marketed but as I said at the beginning I think Tui knew how it was going to be marketed and that plays into some of the the choices he makes so is this just a case of a film that um, you know just didn't go over or got good reviews but because the stars uh, are in it 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 wasn't going to be a hit is it when it was released one thing that strikes me about it is that it is kind of a film or a category of film that is kind of to 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 quite an extent actually disappeared from from wide release absolutely because I had the same sort of feeling watching um, you know, more of a guilty pleasure, but the Lincoln Lawyer, which has got some good things about it for sure. But that also is a kind of like that sort of mid-list legal thriller, and it's you know not a bad thriller, but that's also the kind of film like this. They're sort of in they're in a similar category, I'd say. But you the don't get them anymore. The mid nineties, basically. Yeah, well, that's what it has to sort of disappear. Your you, unlawful Bay entries. Bay <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there you go. Yeah. Well, and, but to me, I think Jamie. the problem is it actually kind of escapes any categorization. As I was saying before, that I find it's you know this supremely moving love story. It's this thriller. It's this action movie. It's it has it has gore. It has these elements of horror. It's 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 hilarious. So it's also comedic. That it's just almost too sprawling to be reductive into you know a five hundred if that word review. Which is why if this seems like we're overcompensating, it's actually just this is just showing the kind of discussion the film might need potentially. But and and I think too a lot of the when I was going back over the the reviews, they weren't necessarily negative but no. it was just sort of these yeah these middling things as we were saying and and saying you know well, it's not pitch black but but it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's the sort of film and this gets into the politics of film criticism a bit but stringers get sent to this movie yeah this is if you're yeah. for a major daily this is the third string credit. Uh, and as as I, that's exactly why I reviewed it for the Toronto Star. I was it, was, it was a third fourth string situation where I ended up writing about it and, then, and i was surprised yeah. at how uh 
how few of the nerd cult websites, mm. even though Toei has produced cult and nerd yeah. properties, did not review this film. Mm. Chad.com didn't review this film. Mm. Inical News had a sub- user-submitted review for this film. Yeah. Um, none of the major geek sites really talked about this movie. And when they did, uh, it was very sarcastic. And it was very much like, oh, it's not, you know, it's not, yeah. it's, it's Toei kind of slumming in a, in a genre that he doesn't belong in. I mean, I called it a B-film earlier, and I think... Like, I think, it, I know that's not a genre, but I feel like it applies. I mean, I was talking to you last week, Adam, about how uh, I want to program a series. I'm going to do American B-movies, and it's going to be Monty Hellman, Don Siegel, and then, like, Charlie Varick, and then A Perfect Getaway. The, the B-films of the 70s that sort of came out of the new Hollywood, that came out of an era where people were upturning and deconstructing <coughs> genre, and sort of learned from that, like, sort of took genre apart and put it back together, and just made it work really efficiently in a way that wasn't necessarily rocking the boat or anything, but is eminently satisfying time and time again. A guy like Don Siegel, for example, even John Borman. John Borman's a bit more on the outer fringe, but, um, and something like this, I mean, we're not used to seeing, because we're so used to seeing, like, people consider a B-movie now to be transmorphers, or like, you know, a direct-to-DVD riff on massively budgeted filmmaking, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned, like, you know, Unlawful Entry, you know, the erotic thrillers of the 90s were great yeah. examples of this where there's you know not exactly high watermarks but there's all like three quarter watermarks you know but that was but that was also a time when the majority of films being released in theaters didn't weren't based on pre-existing material right that they may have been derivative and actually what that whole cycle of like erotic or pseudo-erotic thrillers what killed it was the familiarity of it but they're still essentially original scripts and like the characterizations in this movie to me are closer to that cycle of movies Mm. than to any other main genre of of films that's going on right now i mean this is a it's an original screenplay and i mean it's not the only film that came out that year that had an original screenplay but i think being released in the summer i think that's part of what you know what it what what it suffered for it's not a brand in and of itself and toey also is not a brand name director though he's not nearly as much of a workmanlike invisible director as the people who made the kinds of movies that we're talking about because he has a program he has a visual program he insists on working within genre i mean i don't know if it's productive to call him an auteur but he's not a but he's not a um He's not a workmanlike director. He's not a craftsman who gets hired out for a bunch of projects. He initiates mm-hmm. every film that he makes. So he's actually closer in that way to someone like Paul W.S. Anderson, uh, Jovovich's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Jovovich's husband, who also really at this point in his career seems to only make the movies he wants well, I mean, to make. It's funny because you really describe kind of equivalent figures to sort of Carpenter, Hill, and, um, and Dante back when they actually had the sort of clout, that, enough clout to actually make movies, yeah. some studio, some indie, but they still were able to sort of do a movie a year, basically. And that was that kind of rung of people, really. They, they really have disappeared. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's, I mean, this is kind of like a Southern comfort. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about, uh, you know, the trend that this was coming on. I probably should have researched when these films actually came out, but uh, well, The Teristas Ruins and Touristas. Touristas is 2004. You can imagine him just kind of watching these films and being like, this is a boilerplate that I can sell a script for, and mm-hmm. then writing this terrific script that is, you know, the credit is written and directed by David Tui. Yeah. It may not be auteured, but there's no sense that it went out for a two-week punch-up or anything like <laughs> that. You know? uh, and then sort of capitalizing on this and the expectations of all these films, and you know, blowing away certain people who saw it and then really losing other people who were, you know, upset that the expectations of, you know, the ruins and tourists... Well, although, I, actually, I was going to leap to the defense of the ruins, which is an absolutely gorgeous movie, uh, and directed by Carter Smith, who did one of my favorite shorts from the last 10 years, Bug Crush. I haven't seen that. Incredible. Very, like, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, gay high school Cronenberg. Very, very... Inventive, and I think I can't remember the name of the original. It's Scott Trelawan, who was um, a Toronto writer who wrote the original story. But anyway, the, the Ruins also was a commercial failure, despite being like a huge book. So I think it's actually something about that film which propelled audiences. Why well. is the new Mars? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah, the hatcheted up uh, honeymooning couple. Tourists, yes, uh, never really caught on. There's no basic. Well, the Ruins actually, I think. Uh, you're not going to harp out about the Ruins, but I think the Ruins. <laughs> you go back to the Ruins and you realize it's more or less the same program as the Strangers. I mean, it's a very deeply nihilistic, upsetting movie that doesn't actually do what you think it's supposed to be doing. Is right. it kind of like you know? Yeah. Yeah. Strangers was basically funny games with the fourth wall kept up <laughs> but, it, it, but it's the same point yeah. uh, essentially well, the ruins is maybe seventh continent except they're plants <laughs> <laughs> and Teresa's is the one with the, the undead kind of Aztec uh, yeah. which is yeah I mean we talked about where does this movie go when it gets to it's dead end and the first time I saw it like 
I thought that there would be that sort of, or like a descent element. Where like, yeah. Are they going to fall into a cave and be assailed by some sort of ancient evil? Like, where does yeah. this go from here? But of course, that it doesn't do that. So. Well, but I mean, when we with dead ends, maybe to sum up, not because we're at a dead end, but the question of the movie is, um, like, can anything be done? Do we think, you know, with this movie, do, do we think that this is a film that's just going to kind of live on among people who? who saw it and like it or is it recuperable is it is it reclaimable is this the sort of thing that could get programmed in toronto and actually talked about that way or is it just not going to happen just carry the torch i mean <laughs> i've never shown this movie to someone who didn't like it and maybe not in the same way where as me where i'll watch it once every six months now that it's on netflix there's your netflix subscription it's, it's a great hbo movie yeah right? and it's on it's just, <laughs> yeah. if it's on call a friend it's like watch this now yeah. exactly <laughs> and will it ever catch on i mean I don't know. I, I don't it think, it I don't depends feel what like happens to Toei's to... career as a director. I mean, uh, what happens? What what does he make after Riddick? Because I think what, what I think regardless of Riddick's quality, it it'll continue to peg him as a science fiction right. B picture director who occasionally writes spec scripts for films that flop and are, are hugely expensive. But it's... Or, it could, or it could just you know ride on the back of Mila and Chris as they <laughs> continue to be mounting stars and. But Mila, I feel. Way. Like I feel that's probably one of the reasons why people maybe didn't come to this film because it didn't look like a typical movie. Well, see, I, I did because I I love everything. I mean, like, I, what do we see? Faces, faces in the crowd we rented. Do not day. recommend that, however. Um, no offense, oh. Mila. But that, that's, and I think that's when you were saying, too, when you were talking about, you know, these, these, these geek sites, quote unquote, uh, why they wouldn't see them is because, yeah, it's not Mila in, in, in his, Resident Evil. Yeah, and or I in think, Scandex. I think the geek sets, in, sites, for the, for, for in some part, are almost a kind of. Yeah, but maybe we can redefine the, the, the Mila fan as someone who is more open minded and. and Open. <laughs> I, I, I think by the same token, I was thinking about like you know why why did that particular set of fans not latch on to this movie at all? I think it's kind of the thriller, like the, the when if it's not kind of like um, you know uh, necessarily coming with a big sort of um, you know, directorial imprint or something, but it's kind of like you know it, it, it sort of fits a lot like alongside um, not so much Lincoln Lawyer, but certainly Unknown. Like this kind of they're kind of old fashioned. Like people, I think, are just so unused to seeing them now because they have kind of disappeared, especially since the the death of the erotic thriller by the mid nineties. Yeah, that it has kind of disappeared. This kind of film is something people aren't particularly familiar with anymore. Post Osterman, we yes. <laughs> but but that that's kind of what I'm driving at is that if the movie is going to be reclaimed, it's probably not just going to be on its own merits because those are subjective. It's a question of will it be seen as belonging to a particular particular moment either someone in its cast or its director or 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 something will be seen as 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 worthy of of taking a look at and then maybe it could end up having the reputation the way that some of those lesser known films from the 70s and 80s sort of come to a kind of after the fact fondness because it certainly missed its chance to be any kind of a to be any kind of a hit I mean when I interviewed Oliphant about the crazies and it was interesting interviewing him because it was before Justified happened as well. And now he's kind of a big star. And if this film had come out post-Justified, who knows? Mm -hmm. But you know, part of it was just self-deprecation. He was saying, I really thought they only showed that movie on airplanes, mm -hmm. uh, Perfect Getaway. And he wasn't being harsh about the film. When I pressed him on the film, he said he thought it was one of the best characters that he's ever had to play and that it was a delight especially to work with those actors but he was just completely uh, bewildered that anyone was still talking about that film two two years later and some of that is kind of the charm thing that actors put on to be self-deprecating but it sounded quite uh, you know it, it sounded quite sort of uh, sincere to me and I'm almost afraid to, to, to try and find an interview with Toei talking about the movie because I I wonder how invested he still is in this film two or three years after the fact I think it's career best work you know by far I wonder when he wrote it like is this yeah. something that he had he was on an airplane. <laughs> oh, so, no, you know what? I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted, before we moved away from the, from the question of uh, Timothy Oliphant, too, is that it became almost this like self-fulfilling prophecy of my favorite line, which we haven't even talked about, is that the, you're a man in full. And he, and he becomes this in his you know career afterwards and things like, he was in Deadwood was before this. Suitable for framing as well. Yeah, suitable for framing. But he, he does become this like alpha male man in full and but this is this after the fact but it's almost like you could read too much into yeah. it but this yeah. including a sensitivity with the whole ring absolutely yeah. that's that's why he is everything yeah. he is the full package yeah 
I was I was just thinking of one thing I wanted to for for close to wrap up is just yeah. other favorite things we did not mention yet. <laughs> and one thing we didn't, which is sort of placed the idea of like when could he have written this script? The cell phone scene. Oh, oh god, oh, the yeah. cell phone scene. Because that really does play like a scene that has that where where the screenwriter is fully aware of the YouTube version of the sort of clip reel of like I can't get a signal. Can you get a signal? To actually have all of that condensed into one, you know, just. The three, maybe four, no, I think it's three girls. Three, three girls. girls yeah. No, you know, just to, for them to just be in the scene looking at their phones for a good long time. And they run out of the movie at <laughs> the moment they, they're worried of what movie they might be in. But that comes back again yeah, at the does. top on the cliff when yep. Sanchez can't get her signal. And then she has, again, in a YouTube clip moment, yeah. talking with this operator yeah. saying, please, please, please call the police. Oh, you have yeah. to believe me, which is, again, this totally ridiculous yeah. YouTube That's trope. another scene. That's kind of like a generic movie. trope of the slasher film. Well, it, exactly. Yeah. But, and I feel like because you have if you know if you had one it would feel like a mistake you have no. two it's it's perfect it's also a nice balance of that that conversation would usually happen in a claustrophobic house environment and now she's on a mountain yeah absolutely. the call is coming from inside the continent <laughs> <laughs> besides it being funny which kiva talked on talked a bit about but it is a very funny movie especially elephant but another uh movie to kind of sneak in an at bat for which i feel is uh in the same sort of caliber although when i watch it, I'm kind of enjoying how nasty it is a bit more, and I bore the director. Uh, but Lakeview Terrace, which is one that uh, I find kind of decept not deceptively simple, uh, patently simple, um, but enjoy watching again and again. And Patrick Wilson's another guy where he's kind of like a remixed Tim Oliphant, <laughs> where he seems kind of likable enough, but he's kind of more conventionally handsome than Oliphant and not really charming enough, and it's just kind of doomed to this just sort of under-the-radar status. Yeah, I think the problem with Lakeview Terrace is, though, that being Neil LeBute, it kind of reps an explicit sociological agenda. Right. But to kind of go back to what simultaneously my most fervent and maybe my least believable point about A Perfect Getaway, I simultaneously, this is the thing I feel the strongest about it, and also the thing other people I know who really like the movie don't necessarily agree with me on is... I really do think there is a kind that there's a pause giving idea at the heart of this movie about lifestyle identity shopping and the complete vacuousness and emptiness of these people who move from life to life sort of shedding their skins like it's kind of a serial killerish gimmick and the Zahn character is somewhat ridiculous when he talks about living out a you know I'm the person who's going to live a thousand lives a fever dream of immortality <laughs> a, a, a fever dream of immortality but um I would also say that it's it's there in the movie that um, these characters are so empty and so unhappy with themselves that it's like they kind of want to surf between personas. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it takes something a little bit interesting for a film to have a, an Iraq war veteran with possible PTSD end up being a kind of more attractive character than the liberal city, uh, you know, than the liberal city screenwriter. And that you end up feeling like you have this good carte blanche to finally root for the person you would rather root for anyway, because yuppies are awful. <laughs> and I th and I, I and I think this movie gets at the awfulness of uh, you know of that yuppiness in a way that's not just a joke. It's not just a toss off. It, it's it's deeply ingrained in the thematics uh, of the movie, such as they are. I think it also plays out nicely too in terms of of gender stuff too. That you think oh this resolves itself with a marriage. How you know how Shakespearean how Shakespearean <laughs> how you know small c conservative. Yeah. But you have that really great discussion when the men are off hunting the goats oh, yeah. uh, between uh, between uh, Sanchez and Mila and and Mila's going on about how we're just going to have this life and I'm going to have these babies and we're going to have this house and the babies will be in the house and you know it's just Mila's performance this, is great there oh, she it's, great. Is, it's, it's so it sounds like on. she's about to burst out laughing at herself because, yeah. because it is ridiculous and this ridiculous construction of what you expect marriage to be yeah. and what or you know what the end point of marriage should be of this you know proliferation of wealth and babies essentially that's a great scene too before I bring up this point that I got from the gallery um, but that's a great scene too because she says we want to I want to have five kids and then I was one of five and it sounds like she's either mixing up the details that she's yes. heard yeah. or the character that she murdered was also trying to remake her own life like sure. her life as a child so it just I don't know it's one of the sort of nesting elements that makes mm -hmm. the movie great but uh, yeah something to bring up uh, which has been uh, posed to me by the home audience uh, is that we're, we're talking a lot about the film style uh, and the structure of it being so taut but then that raises the question that we've all kind of talked about briefly or at least skimmed over is that if that's the case then how do we account for the director's cut being a worse version is it just that this is one of those 
rare, perfect, I put that in air quotes, which you won't be able to see on the iPod, but a perfect studio film where the sort of, the, the director's more indulgent tendencies are able to be sort of hemmed in by... The director's cut is both called an unrated and a director's cut. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's there's the question of, did, did they ask Toei, add some more stuff into it so that we can release an unrated cut because we didn't make so much money on the box office. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question as to whether it's just become that sort of a DVD convention. Well, it has been, where it's kind of like we need a slightly different version that we can say unrated on and, yeah. you know, what do you got for us? At the same time, uh, that, that shot, uh, that weird beach, naked pe- women yeah. dancing, uh, sped up, undercrank shot, is pure toey. Like, that's like, <laughs> that's like him going, that's pretty cool. I'll well, but so, but, but so is the scene in the extended cut where Jovovich almost seems to yeah. melt into the lounge chair on the balcony and he's doing these textural things with the champagne being poured on her back and it's like the champagne, her gorgeous back and the chair are all just kind of these different shades of pale I think, and, and I think white. with the director's cut he's simply just indulging the stuff that he's interested in. Yeah. I, I don't think he's unsatisfied with the theatrical cut because uh, I, I think those are just scenes that he shot and... God, I had an opportunity to add it in. There's a good sense, too. I mean, this is a tight film. It's, you know, 90 minutes. But there's a sense that there must have been a producer, an editor, or someone who was, you know, for once sympathizing with the audience in a meaningful way, where it's like, we've taken enough time to get here. Let's ratchet it up. We don't need the undercranked. And the uh, flashback already feels long enough because you're so, like, <coughs> yeah. you've left the action at the at its peak and you really don't want to stay out of there. Because there's, yeah. there's a certain period of time, like, okay, I got it. I have all this information now. Let's get back to the movie. Well, I remember watching the director's cut, which I actually believe I saw before I saw the theatrical cut, that the flashback, I was almost more impressed by it because it seemed like it was a full third of the film. Like, it felt mm-hmm. like you were watching it for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, but then when I saw the theatrical cut and it was leaner and, you know, the the ratchet down and the action kind of isn't as long, you know, it just makes it seem like a, it's firing at all pistons. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks once again to our guests, Jason Anderson, Peter Kaplowski, Adam Naven, Kiva Reardon, and John Semley. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and check out our monthly video magazine at www.theseventhart.org.